programme is brought to you in association with Alexander's Chartered Accountants in Red Hill. Hello and welcome to Out and About here on Radio Red Hill. I'm Katie Child, sitting in for Owen Davies. Today we will be looking back at Radio Red Hill's annual visits to the South of England show. Unfortunately, the show, like many others, was cancelled this year because of the coronavirus pandemic. But we can still experience the agricultural atmosphere by reflecting on years gone by. So let's take a whirlwind tour of the last three years. 2017 was the 50th anniversary of the show. Jess Miles and myself caught up with some usual suspects and a new star attraction. Ladies and gentlemen, the devil's We've just seen a fantastic show by the Devil's Horseman. I'm here with Karina, who was commentating on the show as it was going on. How did it go? Fantastic. The audiences here at the South of England have just really appreciated everything we've been doing. And what kind of tricks do they do and other different styles of riding? Yes, I'm a tricks you just saw were the Cossacks, the Russians, and they used them in battle to avoid using the horse as a shield originally, but then it became more of an art. And like you say, they stand up on the horse's back, they hang upside down, they vault on and off. So it's all very exciting and death-defying. Is this your first year here? Yes, we've never been here before, actually. Have you been here all three days? Yeah, all three days. This is our last day. So hopefully our last show will go out with a bang. Excellent. And how did this all start? It was back in the 70s. Gerard Napruss is the owner of the company. He came over from France with a few horses and started off. And it's grown and grown and grown to a multinational business now. And what is it that the Devil's Horsemen do? Well, as well as the live shows you've just seen, we do film and TV work. We supply horses for all the big movies and riders that double the actors and actresses. Do you want to name any of those movies and TV shows? Most recent, Wonder Woman's just been released. Uh, King Arthur. We did War Horse, Exodus Gods and Kings. And of course, the major TV one is the Game of Thrones. And do you train all the horses to work in these uh, environments? Yes, we've got over 100 horses at home. And whereabouts is home? It's um, Buckinghamshire near Milton Keynes. And how did you get involved with this? Oh, a long time ago, I happened to be... I've ridden all my life, but then I happened to be... When I was about 18, I met Gerard in the same place we were working on the same show. And he said, can I ride? And I said, yes. And that was it. I ended up staying. Do you do any of the stunts? A long time ago. (laughs) I'm 47 now. (laughs) And what's it like commentating on this? It's great, actually, because it is different every time, because I've been commentating for... a while now, a good 15 years, and um, I quite get excited every show as well. I've wandered into the pig tent and uh, I've met with Claire. Hello Claire, tell me about the pigs you've got here. Uh, The one we're looking at now is a British saddleback, so it's a black pig with a white stripe over its shoulders. Uh, This one's Bunty, she's three and a half years old and she's due to have her next litter on the 5th of July, so she won't be long before she has her piglets. Oh lovely, and have you got any piglets at the moment from any other pigs? 
Um, there are piglets in the pig village uh, from one of my other saddlebacks. We have uh, about 15 adults and seven piglets that we brought to the show this year. And what's unique about the saddlebacks? Saddlebacks are really good mothers. Um, they're quite a calm and docile pig, so they're really good for a beginner um, to start with. Um, and, you know, they produce a good carcass if you're going to put them in the freezer. Um, but they are easy to handle, um, you know, and a good all-round pig. Are they the only type of pig which you, uh, you breed? No, I've got four breeds in the show uh, this year. I have got seven, seven breeds altogether, but I've only brought four to the show. So apart from the Saddlebacks, I've got the Pink Land Race. I've got the lovely Ginger Tamworths. Um, and we've also got a Gloucester Old Spot. Excellent. And I see you've got some rosettes here. Have you been showing them at all today? Um, the main showing um, at South of England is on the Thursday um, with the best in show on Friday. And on Saturday we have more novelty classes, um, but they did very well on, on Thursday. Excellent. And how long have you been coming here? Um, we've been showing at South of England now for about seven years. And what do you have to do to get uh, the pigs ready for being shown? Um, it's, it all starts really when they're tiny and you, you're selecting them for showing. Um, the judges are looking as to whether this is a functional commercial farm animal, not is it a pretty pig. So they want to know how many teats the pig's got because they can have between 10 and 18 teats. So the more teats they've got, the more piglets they can feed. So the judge is looking at, you know, does it walk well? Is it a good shape? And all those sorts of things. So we look at that um, in the ones that we're selecting for taking to shows for next year and then before they come to the show um, all my pigs live outside so they're often very muddy um, so they're washed two or three times um, before they come to the show um, and then black pigs um, like Bunty here would have a uh, coating of oil um, onto the black to make her shiny when she goes into the show ring. So we are in the bees and honey tent and we are with Bob Barnes who is a Radio Redhill member so if you'd just like to tell us a bit about what you're doing here. Well, I'm the person in charge of putting this area of the South of England show together. It's all about telling people the message about the importance of bees and beekeeping. Quite often people come along and they're interested to become beekeepers. So we've got lots of information for them. And one of the highlights of what we do here is each hour we do a demonstration of live beekeeping. So we have a couple of beekeepers put on bee suits and we invite a couple of members of the public to go out with us as well. And we show people what happens when you take the top off of a hive, you use your smoker and you look at the bees inside so that's quite fascinating and we're also selling honey that's important too are you a beekeeper yourself oh absolutely yes uh, very important to be a beekeeper um, most of the people who are on this stand today are beekeepers and they have a passion for beekeeping so and they like to talk about beekeeping of course just ask one of them and you'll be there for half an hour so what would you say is your top tip for someone that wants to become a beekeeper? Oh, that's easy. Join your local beekeeping association. Uh, because keeping bees is a big responsibility and it's quite complicated. So don't just get on a well-known auction site and buy bees. Find out about courses, work with other beekeepers first and then get your bees. And I mean, a lot of people know that bees are very important to the environment. If you would just like to explain how that is. Well, it's, uh, one of the important things that bees do is to pollinate flowers. And if bees didn't pollinate flowers, there would be a lot of things missing from our diet. Uh, apples, for example, are a great example. All of that top fruit, apples and pears and plums, for example, they're all fertilised by bees. Beans as well. And so the diversity of the planet would reduce totally if we didn't have bees to pollinate. And I can see there's a lot of different varieties of honey. How many varieties are there? An infinite number. 
and there is a competition today? Uh, yes, yeah, so our competition classes are judged on Thursday morning uh, and we have a judge who's recognised by the British Beekeeping Association come along. And yes, you can enter your honey, you can enter your honey fruitcake, you can enter your blocks of wax. Uh, and it's quite a serious business. These things are fairly hotly contested. Uh, so to get best to show for your best honey, that's a, that's a good accolade. And which honey actually won it this year then? Uh, so the winning honey, which got a blue ribbon, uh, is the one that you can see on the display. We've got a number of different colours of honey. So it's uh, a lightish coloured runny honey. You, you can see well, we've got uh, also set honeys, uh, honey and comb. But it's that light one that won the, uh, the special award this year. Well, that's great. And of course, you had a special visitor on Thursday. Did she come in the tent? Yes, we're very proud of that, that Her Royal Highness the Duchess of Cornwall came into the Bees and Honey tent. Uh, of course, a flying visit, as it were, because she had a lot of things to see. But we were the first area that she visited at the show, and we were delighted that she came in and talked to a number of us. Uh, but she's a beekeeper. She, she has bees at Highgrove, so um, it uh, wasn't the case that we had to tell her the bee message. Uh, but it was lovely to meet her, and she's a very charming lady. We're looking back at Radio Redhill's visits to the South of England show over the last few years. In 2018, Jess Miles spoke to some people from Plumpton College while Nigel Gray explored the flower tent and watched a popular countryside dance. I'm now with Jill at the Morris Dancing Display and Jill, first of all, nice of you to talk to me. You're very welcome. And secondly, I know nothing at all about Morris Dancing, so you can tell me all you know about Morris Dancing and in particular, perhaps how long you've been doing it and what brought you into it. Okay, there are many forms of Morris Dancing. Uh, if you move around the country, different regions have their own style. And if you go to the Cotswold area, that's the style that is most popular, where the men wear bells on their shins and they use hankies and sticks. And that's what people mostly think of when you mention Morris dancing. But if you move about the country, there are different styles. For instance, there's longsword dancing in Yorkshire. Further north, there's rapper sword dancing. There's molly dancing in the southeast or east. Norfolk maybe uh, and in the northwest of England as you might imagine they wear clogs when they do dancing and lots of processions and flowery hats and such regalia and the knots of May started in 1974 their original idea was that they were going to dance northwest Morris and then they were very kindly given lots of notation from a Mr Roy Domit and it became very clear quite early on that they were going to develop their own style. So the Knots of May, if you see the Knots of May advertised as Morris dancing, what you get is not what you expect. We do very many varied dances. We use flower decorated garlands. Uh, we use clogs which have got iron on the bottom of them to protect the wood, so they make a lovely noise. Uh, and the dances we do, we have some from the northwest. But we also have dancers from Europe, from the Basque region, from Flanders. And because we've been going for quite a long time, we've decided that we now need to write some of our own dancers. So some of the dances we do are uniquely ours because they've been written by us. I should have said in the first place, of course, that you are from the Knots of May. In fact, you've got a lovely medallion around your neck saying so. 
Well, this silver medallion, yes, is the one that the president wears when every two years we change who leads the team. Uh, the rest of the side have little felt badges embroidered with the emblem. So you're the president? At the moment. Well done. <laughs> uh, OK. And as I mentioned to you earlier, uh, I know nothing about uh, Morris dancing, so how long would it take you to become a Morris dancer? To learn what, what you're doing? Or can you, if I was to walk into it today, for example, could I join in or would I be very stupid? Uh, we'd like you to spend the winter practicing, uh, which is what we mostly do. Uh, we don't. We, we as a side don't tend to go out at Christmas and in the winter, as other sides do, but we don't. Uh, we generally practice in the winter, and by the time, if you start in October, say, and by the time April comes, then you're probably ready to do some of the dances. We have got a repertoire of 26, and there's no way that you're going to learn 26 in that first year. with Evelyn at the um, Plumpton College Dan. Hi Evelyn. Hiya. So if you just want to tell us a little bit about Plumpton College. So yeah it's a land-based college it's um, over about, it's about 850 hectares so it's really big you can do anything really from equine to floristry to horticulture to agriculture to motor vehicles and um, they do lots of one-day courses and degrees and also like college level as well and there's animal management countryside management fisheries um what else is there just uh, absolutely heaps yes it sounds like there's quite a lot of courses what do you specialize in um so i'm on the um uh, foundation degree equine studies so i've just finished my first year um yeah doing doing horses really that sounds great and what drew you to Plumpton college in particular um so i went to i'd always heard about it because i'm from the south um and then i went to uh, the open day, one of the open days they have in May. I just loved it. I just loved the feel of it. It's beautiful campus. Um, everyone just, you know, the facilities are amazing, especially like obviously from the equine point of view. I've uh, got so many things. Got horse walkers. There's three schools to use. There's a massive American barn. Um, so the facilities were brilliant, and I just got a really good, good feel about it. Really, really nice energy. What is included, sort of, in a an equine course? What's included with that? So we study um, everything really from nutrition. Nutrition, um, down sort of to behaviour. You do your practical management skills. So it's actually handling the horse um, and how you look after them. Um, and then you do anatomy and physiology. Um, and you do uh, health and disease, reproduction, and training as well. Um, and then in the second year, again, some of those are taken into further detail. So like your anatomy and stuff. Um, and then you can also choose some different uh, modules as well. That's great. Well, thank you for speaking to us, and I hope you have a good day at the show. Thank you. I'm just speaking with Sarah at the moment from the wine department at Plumpton College. Hi Sarah. Hi. So if you just want to tell us a little bit about your store that you have today. So we are the wine department at Plumpton College. We have a commercial vineyard and winery. So the students get real hands-on experience of working in the vineyard and in a proper winery. And we then sell the wine. So if you come along to the store, you can taste our full range. Uh, we also have wine available to buy by the bottle. Um, and we can talk to you about our courses. That sounds great. And um, what kind of wine do we have here today? So we've got two still whites, um, a still rosé, a still red, a sparkling rosé and a sparkling white. 
And what does the course include? Um, do they do a lot of practicals? So we have, you can either do wine production or wine business. Um, so on the production side, you're learning how to grow grapes and make wine. So viticulture is, is growing grapes. So you go out into the vineyard and you learn all about the theory behind how the vines grow and how to look after them and how to drive tractors. Um, and in the winery, people come to us and they learn all the science behind winemaking um, and lots about tasting and we make the wines so they do a lot of blending and here we just spend the whole year making the wine basically and then we get to bottling and then, then we bring it to here and we try and sell it. Now I'm talking to a very important person now because it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's Jean Griffin and Jean it says here on your badge committee chairman of the South, South England Agricultural Show. You're in fact in charge of this particular area of the flower tent, aren't you? Uh, that's right. I'm the um, horticultural chairman. So um, this is my baby, really. It's your baby? It is. Now, um, before we started recording this interview, um, we did speak, in fact, and you mentioned the fact that you actually are quite an experienced broadcaster. You do work for BBC, I believe, the local stations. I do, that's right, for Surrey and Sussex and for Radio Kent. And therefore... You have to answer lots of listeners' questions, no doubt. Absolutely. It's um, a phone-in programme. What sort of questions do you get asked most? Everything from um, a green fly to um, what's eating my lawn or digging up my lawn, and I always say, well, it may be badgers. Maybe badgers. Maybe badgers. It could be squirrels, it could be anything else, or it could be even your dog. I have very technical questions sometimes, sort of very difficult for you to answer. Some of them are, yes, but what I won't do is try to flannel. And so what I usually say is, look, I haven't got a clue what, what the answer is, but leave your telephone number with the um, producer and I'll ring you back. And I always do. So how many years have you been involved with flowers, ever since you were about sort of knee-high? Well, my grandfather was a, a sheet metal worker in a galvanising, um, in South Wales, in a galvanising factory. And he was a great gardener and he used to grow chrysanthemums and he used to grow roses to exhibit. And um, I used to play around with him. And that was the start. My father wanted me to be a teacher when I finished school. And I said, I don't want to teach, I don't want to teach. I want to do horticulture. So I went to um, a college up in Studley in Warwickshire, which is no longer there, unfortunately. But, um, and then I came to Surrey. And I used to work for a company called John Waterer Sons and Crisp at Bagshot. After that, um, then I went to Kew, the Royal Botanic Gardens, as a student. And after that, you know, life takes over, doesn't it? You have a big garden of your own? Very small. Oh! Very small. But I do have an allotment as well, which um, is not in very good condition at the moment, so um, I've got to get working next week. Yeah, but flowers are more important, don't they? No. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think a little bit of everything. Um, I, I don't grow many um, vegetables at home. I grow them on the allotment. But I love, I love growing vegetables because I won't spray anything that I'm going to eat other than it's a, a natural um, spray. And so I've been talking to the lady with the bees down there and she's really fantastic and she says the same thing. On Radio Red Hill, we regularly speak to the Radio Red Hill garden, and that's a gentleman called Norman Flint, and he's a great expert on dahlias. Are you, do you specialise in any particular flower? Not particularly, no. I do like camellias, um, because we are used to propagate camellias completely. I just like an eclectic mix of everything, and the, the rarer for me, the better. We're coming up to date now with our South of England show visits and looking back at last year's event. Nigel Gray met some feathered friends while I spoke to the year's sponsored charity and found a rather fun way to make healthy food.
We're here at the South of England show and I am on a pedal bike at the moment which is making a smoothie and I'm here with Sandra. And Sandra, tell me, what uh, what is this contraption? <laughs> uh, so this is a smoothie bike. Um, we're Chartwell School Meals and it's about using your energy to make your own smoothie rather than plugging a machine. So we're all about the healthy eating concept to make sure that um, we follow school food standards and everyone eats, eats really healthy. Um, so we just get the children energised and to literally use pedal power and then we make sure that they try it and it's just literally fruit. That's all they're having. So... Um, yeah, they, they absolutely love it. So That's fantastic. And uh, so where did this idea come from? Um, originally, there was a company a few years ago who just made the bike and it was, it was quite a small concept at the idea. Um, and then once Chartwell's got hold of it, we got someone to make the bike for us. Um, and then it's just literally got a, a normal everyday smoothie um, attached to it that is just used the pedals and off it goes. So how is the smoothie maker connected to the bike? Um, So there's just a wheel underneath the platform. um, And as you pedal and the wheel of the bike goes round, it flicks that wheel round as well, which is turning the smoothie maker. How many schools do you go to? So we cater for 200 in West Sussex. Um, We plan on seeing about 60 to 80 of those here over the next few days. So um, hopefully they'll all come up, recognise us and get energised. Brilliant. And do you find that it makes a big difference to how children are eating? Absolutely. I think children are definitely choosing more wiser these days Um, we also do a sugar swap table where they come and learn how much sugar's in the drinks and things that they would usually buy Um, and once they've learned how much sugar's in those things they kind of make that informed a better judgment of what they're going to choose next time Um, so yeah it's all about the fruit juices and the waters rather than the energy drinks and the ribenas Birds of Prey are always a popular feature at the South of England show and um, I'm with a bird of prey and also with a proud owner uh, she belongs to the centre that we come up from. We're volunteers. So. And your name is? James. And which centre is that? Uh, Huxley's Experience. So in base in Horsham, just outside of Horsham. And do you just specialise in birds of prey or what happens? Yeah, we've over 80 birds of prey, but there's the odd couple of uh, extras. We have a raven and a kookaburra. She's going to have a peck at your microphone in a minute. <laughs> you behave. Uh, but yeah, mainly birds of prey, yeah. Okay. You told her to behave. Will she take your instructions? Um, they're pretty good, some of them. They, they learn to recognise their voices and things like that, but otherwise, otherwise they do exactly as they want to do. Now, she's a really, really large bird. Can you tell me more, more about this particular one? Um, so she's a Chilean blue eagle. Her name's Quasar. How old, Debbie? Uh, three years old. Three years old. So she's gradually changing colour. She'll end up all the way down her tummy will be the same colour as up here. You'd be nice. Um, <laughs> But yeah, a big bird, six foot wingspan, you know, she's... Six foot wingspan? Yeah, easily, yeah. I'm not an expert on birds of prey, but obviously they come in different sizes and so on. Yeah, she's she's quite big. She's a small eagle, but she's a big bird of prey. So back at the centre, we've got everything from African pygmy falcons, which are the size of a zebra finch, all the way up to a golden eagle who weighs nearly a stone, so... Nearly a stone? Yeah, she's, she's a big girl, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and what do they eat all the time? I mean, do they go off and get their own prey or do you literally have to feed them all the time? We, we run experience days where in the winter the Harris Hawks, we take them out in the field and we, and we do go, you know, they like to chase rabbits and pheasants and things, but predominantly we feed them chicken and it's their day old chicks. I see. And they enjoy that? <laughs> yeah, it's a perfect little food package for them, so. Now, 
You've also got a whole lot of birds of prey next door here as well. Yes, we've a few others. Um, these, these ones around here, now they're a lot smaller, aren't they now? Tell me more about these ones. Yeah, much smaller. So these are a small collection of the falcons from the centre. Um, so the centre's owned by Julian Ford. Um, he's quite a well-respected falconer. Um, but his his favourite thing are falcons. That's what he loves to fly. Um, we've got nearly 30 back at the centre. Um, and these are six of them. There's Tizer there in the corner. I'm attracted particularly to Tizer. It reminds me of my school days. I used to drink Tizer. Someone else said that today as well, actually. Yeah. Someone else said that today as well. Tell me more about Tizer in particular. So Tizer's a hybrid falcon. Um, he's three years old, but he's half peregrine, half saker falcon. Uh, it's becoming really popular at the moment uh, in falconry to, to make hybrids, especially with the falcons. So someone like Tizer, for instance, a peregrine, obviously the fastest thing on the planet. A Seika falcon are one of the biggest falcons that you can get. So you cross the two together and you get a really large, really fast falcon. The sponsored charity of the South of England show is Jamie's Farm and I'm here with Joe. Hi Joe. what is Jamie's Farm all about? So Jamie's Farm was set up 10 years ago by Jamie Fielden and as part of a, of a project really to support and improve the lives of disadvantaged and vulnerable children in school um, and so the concentration is on young people who are really struggling at school secondary school particularly um, and at risk of exclusion or at risk of social exclusion so they're starting to absentee themselves and not cope very well and they come down for a life swap week on one of our farms they spend five days with us working on a proper working farm with livestock um, they cook with us they walk with us, they garden with us, um, they do some arts and crafts with us and they put away for the week their sweets and crisps and mobile phones and technology and really get immersed in rural life. And what is their first reaction when they get to the farm? Often, because they're mostly from the inner city, it's shock and awe that they're so far away from anything that they know and that there's lots of animals around and lots of space and lots of greenery, particularly at night because you know we tend to be in spaces where there isn't lamp light and even like so they're really amazed by the stars and the blackness of the sky and so on what's their reaction to the animals are they afraid of them to begin with or are they are they drawn to them both so <laughs> yeah so they can be really um amazed by the size of the animals so a real cow a real sheep a real pig actually how big they are and um and how smelly they are and how much food they need to eat. But some of them really won't have encountered anything other than a dog or a cat or a squirrel before. Yeah, so it's quite a big change. <laughs> how do they adapt to a life without technology like phones and internet? They, the thought of it is worse than the reality. So when we go into school and we meet them for the first time, we tell them about what they're going to be doing, they can react quite strongly to the idea they won't have their phone or their technology. In reality, when they get down to us, we keep them so busy and they're so occupied all day and most of the evening that actually it doesn't become such an issue. We very rarely hear people saying, I really need my phone now. Um, and by the end of the week, although it sounds like I'm making it up, Actually, a lot of them say they're quite glad to have had the break from their phone in particular. What would you say is the hardest task uh, which they are set when they're on the farm? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> or the most interesting? <laughs> OK, the hardest, that's easy, that's pig poo. <laughs> they really find pig poo difficult. The one that wins them over the most probably is log chopping. They really get huge... Um, 
sense of achievement out of splitting a big old log with an axe. Yeah, girls and boys. Well, thank you for joining me on a trip down memory lane at the South of England show. Now, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today here on Out and About. I'm Katie Child, sitting in for Owen Davies on Radio Red Hill. That programme was brought to you in association with Alexander's Chartered Accountants in Red Hill. Comedy Classic on Radio Red Hill. Present Arthur Lowe, John LeMessurier and Clive Dunn in Dad's Army. <laughs> round and round went the great big wheel, featuring John Lorry, Arnold Ridley and Ian Lavender with this week's guests Bill Pertwee, Larry Martin, John Barron and Michael Knowles. <laughs> Here is the news and this is John Snag reading it. As 1942 dawns with renewed enemy activity on all fronts, The need for newer and more devastating weapons becomes number one priority. In an underground room at the War Office, Colonel Pierce, Officer Commanding Secret Weapons, very carefully opens a small cardboard box which he hands to his adjutant. There you are, Stuart. What do you make of that? Looks like a shoebox, sir. Inside the box, you idiot! (laughs) Sorry. It's a wheel, sir. Well done, Stuart. That's exactly what it is. A wheel, but with a difference. This is a scale model of the secret weapon we shall be testing at Warmington next Saturday. Awful exciting, isn't it, sir? Yeah, the actual wheel itself stands some 20 feet high and contains 2,000 pounds of high explosive. It'll knock out an enemy pillbox, no matter how thick, up to a range of three miles. Now, what do you think of that, eh? It's called the High Explosive Attack Device, propelled by ultra-high frequency. For short, they've called it by the code name, Head Poof. I like it, sir. Now, by means of a simple control panel, the wheel will do anything we want it to do. Turn left, turn right, even go round obstacles. It's awfully clever, sir. Yes, this wheel could well be the turning point in the whole war. So I don't have to tell you, Stuart. It's red hot. I hope you've got the security well buttoned up. Yes, sir. I've done a thorough recce of the airfield at Warmington on sea. Oh, good, good. Bit off the beaten track, but ideal for our purpose. Now, we'll need quite a few troops to keep the area sealed off. Yes, sir. Mm. I thought instead of using regular troops, Mm. we could use those, um, what do you call them? Those uh, home things. Huh? (laughs) Home things? Oh, you mean the home guards! Yes, it's very good. Yes, that's right. (laughs) There are three home guard platoons in the area. The East Gate under Captain Square. They'll guard the entrances to the airfield. Mm -hmm. The Dimwich under Captain Graham. They'll patrol the perimeter and keep out any snoopers. Yes, but what about admin, fatigues, cookhouse and digging the latrines? All the dirty jobs. Now, who's going to do these? I thought the Warmington on Sea platoon. <laughs> it's run by Captain Mannering. He's the local bank manager. Oh, yeah. What did he say when you asked him to do the fatigues? I haven't told him yet. Huh? <laughs> I'm going down to see him today. Well, it's not going to be easy to convince him that his platoon should do all the dirty work. <laughs> Don't worry, sir. I'll talk him into it. Give him plenty of soft soap. Butter him up, you know. Well, that's right. Make him feel important. There's nothing bank managers like better than feeling important. <laughs> And that, Captain Mannering, is a brief outline of the test. I don't want to take up too much of your time. After all, you're a very important man. Oh, I I wouldn't say I was important. Would you, Wilson? No, not really, no. (laughs) Thank you, Wilson. 
Captain Merrick, I've told you what the other home guard platoons will be doing at the test, but I haven't said what you'll be doing, have I? I'm eager to hear, sir. <laughs> well, the fact is, <laughs> I, uh, I don't quite know how to put this. You see, <clears throat> the fact is, there are several things that have to be done, not very pleasant things, and I, uh, well, that's to say, we... Uh, <laughs> say well, no uh, more, sir. What you're trying to tell me is that you want us for special duties. Do I? Yes, that's right. I want you for special duties. You can rely on us, sir. Exactly. What are special duties, sir? Well, uh, Oh, really, Wilson? What a question to ask. Uh, top secret. Hush, hush. We shall find out when we get there. Oh, yes. You'll find out, all right. <laughs> now, Captain Manning, I want you to get your chaps together and brief them. And don't forget, absolute secrecy. <clears throat> oh, and here's a list of things to bring with you. Ah, thank you, sir. You can trust my chaps. They won't breathe a word to a soul. And may I add how proud and privileged I am that you've chosen my platoon to carry out these special duties? <laughs> yes. <laughs> See you on Saturday, then. Good night. Good night, sir. What an awfully nice chap, wasn't he? Yes, wasn't he? <laughs> <clears throat> now, special duties call for special measures. There's only one place where we can be sure of not being overheard. We must go underground. Yeah, but I don't think we'll all get into the vicar's shelter, sir. Oh, not his shelter, Wilson. The crypt. Oh. 